Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I would also like to mention that our next Elwin Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future volume is now available. Writers of the Future anthologies are available wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia. Today's guest is Bruce Bernaysi, who I've known for over five years. We met when he came to Los Angeles as an Illustrators of the Future winner for Volume 34. He was a guest on the podcast three years ago when we met up in Salt Lake City Fanex and spoke about art direction and setting your ego aside. He joined us on a few Illustrators of the Future panels at DragonCon in Atlanta. He's very much appreciated for having introduced multiple artists who are now winners to the Illustrators contest. He's now attending this year's workshop for the Volume 39 Illustrator winners to help Echo Chernick deliver the workshop. He's made himself very successfully known as a science fiction fantasy landscape artist, and I'm very happy to welcome him back. So hello, Bruce. Thanks for having me again. So um, I guess since we last talked three years ago, there's been a lot of water under the bridge and a lot of expansion to your career. So sure. just a little bit about like what you've done and what you see as your successful pattern, because you do, you do attend a lot of conventions, mm-hmm. and that's been a big part of it, sure. but you travel a lot. At least you used to travel mm-hmm. all over the place. Yeah. So how does all this stuff mix Well, I would say that conventions allowed me to expand my business earlier than I could have otherwise. I mean, I think probably when I, when I won the contest, I was still working a part-time job and, and just doing art in as much spare time that I, as I had. And conventions allowed me to expand that to art as my full-time career. Um, and since that time, or since we last spoke, uh, I've been getting a lot of work with Wizards of the Coast on Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering. Uh, I did uh, interior illustrations for the illustrated edition of the Witcher books from Orbit Books. Um, so I would say those were some of my biggest successes. I even got to do a, a cover illustration for uh, a Dungeons and Dragons book. Wow. So, yeah. Well, that's way cool. It's pretty exciting. Yes. So when. You know, we we talked in when, whenever I see you at conventions, you've got these big placemats or um, yeah, playmats. Playmats. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. So playmats. So what is a playmat? And you make amazing landscapes, fantastic landscapes. So what is a playmat? And because again, it's something I didn't since I'm not into sure. RPG. You know, it's not something that I like you're familiar with. Yeah, yeah of course. I'm, so explain how that whole sure. thing works. So playmats, uh, I think, were originally uh, com- uh, an item used for playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, people liked to have uh, mats that they could put their cards on. It would keep them cleaner, and they wouldn't be just directly on the table or whatever surface that they were playing with. Uh, they could also have art on the playmats that would represent them personally. Like they, they could show what kind of... Uh, 
what kind of deck they intended to play or, or what kinds of things they were excited about, whatever fan art they were into and, and so on. Um, since then, I think people also use them as just oversized mouse pads that they can have at their <laughs> desk. Seriously oversized. Yeah, they're, they're like, you know, uh, probably like at least three times larger than a, than a typical um, mouse pad. So they, you, you can put like your keyboard on them and, and so on and just have some art at your, at your desk or yeah. your cubicle or, or whatever. Um, some people use them for, for doing like tarot readings. Uh, some people use them for playing games where you're rolling dice. And these days you've got dice made out of all kinds of materials, metal, stone, and so on. And you don't want to like chip the dice or chip your table. Uh, you might roll them on a, on a play mat instead. And since I'm a landscape artist, they're conveniently horizontally oriented, yeah. so it's it's easy to put a lot of my art on them. That's cool. Now, landscape art. So I'm familiar with artists, and some of our some of our judges do. It used to be the mats that they would create for movies. Mm -hmm. You know, sure. matte paintings. Yeah. Yes. So did this evolve from that, or is this another thing, or? I would I would say that it's just my personal interest I guess is is more about places than people or characters just in general I think most people gravitate towards characters and people and that's like a very natural psychology of of the human being right we like mm -hmm. cute things we we you know like villains that we can you know get angry at and and so on people invest a lot in characters but for me it's about places i've always loved traveling so you know getting to connect my love for travel with my my love for uh, reading imaginary places and express that in my art of landscapes now in terms of how that works as a subject for for products um, games use background art a lot of the time, uh, concept art of the places that they'll, they might build out as a 3d level as well. Games like magic, the gathering specifically have some sets of cards that are lands, mm -hmm. uh, basic lands or otherwise. So they need a fair bit of, um, landscape art on a regular basis. Um, so there's, there's a fair number of venues that, that need landscape art specifically, and even like sci-fi or horror or fantasy uh, places. Right. So, I mean, we watched uh, this morning some of the, um, in his words, the thing from Elwin Hubbard talking about what he, you know, how he went about and he'd have, you know, you talk about affinity and reality and be able mm -hmm. to understand, you know, what it is. He traveled a lot. Yeah. You know, he went to Definitely. China. He went, to, if you want to do sure. it, then you you know, he became a logger to be able to right, write right. You know, logging stories and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So he was able to put his own experiences into what he wrote. So is that like translate for you as an, as an artist? You sure. translate it's, what it's very similar. Yeah, it's very similar to what I do. Um, you know, I've I've probably been to like thirty seven countries. Uh, so far, with the intent of hopefully seeing many, many more. <laughs> and everywhere I go, I'm I'm carefully observing what what I'm seeing, what kinds of environment they have, what kinds of um, uh, creatures and um, plants and things live there and how it all comes together and various environmental effects that they might have based on the weather or, or so on that they've got there. And all of that 
goes into my mind as, as grist for the mill mm-hmm. and then goes into my, my creative endeavors. I've definitely had some pieces that needed to be inspired by uh, the landscapes and the architectures of China or Turkey and so on. And having been to those places and having a, a deep affinity for them, like really enjoyed them, loved being there, comes through in the work. Yeah. When I interviewed Larry Elmore couple of years ago, he talked about how he did his, he did something and someone says, oh, that's the Larry Elmore rock. I said, what do you mean? So they all look the same. And he started, he thought about that and a similar thing happened on his waterfalls and they're Larry Elmore rocks, Larry Elmore waterfalls. And he realized he didn't really like, he, like it is on foliage, on vegetation, on his dragons, on stuff like that, on his people. He's got such amazing detail, mm-hmm. but not in his rocks. He never really looked mm. at a rock to see sure. what makes a rock a rock and a waterfall. What makes a waterfall look like it looks and how does that right. work? And he said he just he spent so much time getting Then he was able to distinguish what a rock actually looks like to paint a proper rock, not mm-hmm. a Larry Elmore rock. Sure. And what a waterfall That's... looks like. So I'm just curious for yourself now, because you're talking about you look around and see. And I think this is important for especially artists that are listening to mm-hmm. this. Um, it's not just a matter of going around. Like when I go around and I look at stuff, I go, wow, that's really neat. That's cool. I love that. But I'm looking from a people viewpoint. Sure. I got people I'm looking at. By I'm, a regular bystander, right? Yeah. And so I'm looking at that stuff, but I'm not like, oh, I love that mountain. But if someone say, okay, describe the mountain, it was it was big, you know. But right. if I got into people, I say, oh, this person was this, this person was that. I love their attitude there. They were a little bit covert. This person here was really angry. I can mm-hmm. think those things through, sure. but not that way on on stuff. So the way you're talking about, so how do you how do you do that? And how do you did you acquire that to be able to have that? I from seeing that kind of detail to translate. I think it just starts with interest. If you have a passion about a subject, like say mountains or a rock, for example, you're going to study it more. You're going to know that there's many different types of geology. You're going to think, oh, okay, is that obsidian? Is that basalt? Is that granite? They all have very different looks, different colors, different makeup. Uh, they break in different ways. So when you break them in, down into boulders and pebbles and so on, they they have different kinds of shapes. Um, so the more you know about the geology of the thing, the more you're going to actually understand uh, how to do a specific rock, not a default, which is basically rock. What, <laughs> what you know what Larry was was maybe defaulting back to to you know a particular way of of showing it every time because he was focused more on the characters in his pieces at that time, mm-hmm. right? So if we're giving kind of like an equivalent amount of um, tender love and care, as I as I often say, to each. Uh, each part of the the piece that we're making, each passage, um, then we can make it more specific and we can avoid just defaulting all the time to something that will feel a little bit less loved. And in some cases, it might just be like, oh, well, we can lovingly say that it's a, it's a Elmore rock and it might be part of his, his style. Like the things we don't care about also kind of contribute to our style, yeah. you know, because the focus will just naturally go elsewhere. 
when that's the case. But for someone like me, who's all about the landscapes, like I want to know what kinds of plants live there. I want to know what kind of geology, you know, I want to think about these things as I'm painting it. So I know exactly specifically what it is and what kind of character it's going to, to show. Because even though it's fantastical, which you're creating, mm -hmm. or science fiction landscape, it's still, because it's based on an actual understanding of the environment, that type of rock, sure. that type of river, that type of landscape, yeah. that like it looks plausible. Yeah, and, and you know, to some degree we lean on uh, having some recognizable things to make the implausible feel plausible. So it's like my dragon in the cave is going to feel more real if the cave around it, which is something that we, we can see and we recognize and we've seen in movies or TV or we've been physically to some caves, we know what they look like. And if you are able to accurately represent that, then you can make the dragon, which we've never seen in person, uh, feel real as well. That's, that's a really good point. I've not really talked to an artist about it like this. I've talked to writers mm -hmm. all the time about that whole thing of you build a world that people can believe, yeah. and then you can put in the unbelievable in there, and people are willing, all right. They'll suspend their disbelief. Exactly. So it's, just, it's absolutely the same thing then with, mm -hmm. with illustration. Definitely. Okay, good. I mean, this is great because I'm I'm not really talking to me about this before sure. like this. So this is, and then you can even go further and say if we're in a completely alien environment and there's nothing there that we recognize, um, there are ways to approach that as well. In this very specific, like thinking about specifics, it's like okay, if I change this, like if the the um, sky is always. Uh, purple in this place, like, how's that going to change the type of vegetation that lives there, right? Like, you know, our normal green vegetation might not be able to survive in that environment because that's the kind of light that's filtering down to it. So you kind of have to uh, have some analysis that you can go through about like, okay, if this, then that, right? And you can kind of follow the chain of of things that will will be different mm -hmm. and you'll understand and be able to world build the completely alien environment. And so people will approach it and at first they'll they'll almost maybe even almost feel revulsion because people tend to when they they come across something completely new. Uh, but the more they look, the more they'll see that everything kind of has a, a coherence, right? There's an internal logic to it. Right. That you can start to dig into and it's going to, to pull them back into the piece and, and make them like it more. Okay, that makes sense. Now, on doing your homework. So you've mm -hmm. done a lot of traveling, but what constitutes homework? Because I've seen a lot of your, like, well, it's been a couple of years, but mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of your, your landscapes and they're, the detail is amazing on them, what you've, what you've created, mm -hmm. and, and they're big. You know, you've got the sure. mats I've seen there. They'll Massive not only spaces, fit the, yeah. yeah, they'll not only fit the, the keyboard and the mouse, but they'll oh, can, yeah. they'll fix your bowl of kicks cereal <laughs> as well. And maybe some toast and right. orange juice. So they're big, you know. Yeah. So you've got a lot of detail because it's not just like a small thing you blew up. You actually yeah. painted a big painting Picture. there. Yeah. So homework versus your experience. What's the ratio there? Well, what do you mean by homework? Like taking reference or? Well, you, you're talking about like, you know, 
schist looks this way, mm-hmm. you know, crystal will look that way. Yeah. Different rocks will, you know, if it's if it's something from volcanic, then it's going to have a slant to it. it looks differently. If right. it's if it's uh, the the cleavage foam, of the rock will look different. All that yeah. stuff like yeah. that, you know. So that when I say homework like that, that you actually um, have the already got know because of college or because you then you go and study it. Okay, I'm going to do something with this, so I'm going to yeah, look it up and. I, I I'd say it's it's partly no, knowing enough to to know when you have to go looking for more. Mm-hmm. Basically, because I've I've been you know kind of a rock hound and and so on since I was a kid, so I do have a a large basis of knowledge just from having that interest. But I certainly don't know everything about geology, right? Right, and so when I know, okay, the conditions are like this, we're in a volcanic area, and maybe I need to go searching for some reference of volcanic areas, and I have to be like, okay, so let's look at some volcanoes from Hawaii, let's look at some volcanoes from Iceland, let's see what feels right for this piece and then dig in more like find more reference photos uh maybe find some things to read like read a travel blog or something like or if i've you know um if i have the chance to travel of course i'd love to do that (laughs) but you know most most of these pieces aren't really going to pay for for that much of an extravagance unless i've already just been there for, for whatever reason um so yeah looking for more information about the place so that i can represent it uh, with as much uh, specificity as, as I can. Okay, that's good on that. On on doing this, now you attended the workshop, I said five years ago, um, and in the workshop you had your instructors there. You had, who were the instructors you had then at the workshop? Uh, it was uh, Laz and uh, Echo Chernik mm-hmm. were the, the main ones running the um, the workshop. Um, and Larry Elmore was there, um, Val, uh, we had a few more, like mostly they were kind of like the, some of the judges were there as just like a, a quick, um, yeah. introduction to, to who, who they were. And, and really it was Echo and Laz who were like running the whole shebang. Yeah. yeah. So now, um, during that workshop, just cause I know there's the various essays from the art book mm-hmm. that, that people will read, that the winners will read. And um, any particular essay that you remember that stands out for you? Um, I remember we specifically talked about um, color theory. It was like color intensity or something like that. Um, For me now, like five years later, it's kind of hard to disentangle, like, uh, because I kind of just sponge up information when it comes to to color theory. Um, Even though my process, when I actually get to it, is a little bit more intuitive, I do like to study and take in those things analytically first and think about them, and mm-hmm. then it kind of applies itself um, in my work later. I get it. So anything, like what was your general, um, I guess, take back home from it having attended the, the workshop? The workshop? Uh, a lot of what we covered that was, you know, because I'd done some workshops before. I, I think at that point, when I when I won a, the award, it was basically like the last quarter that I possibly could have gotten into the contest because uh, I was just about to have some stuff published that would have put me over the oh, edge. Out, yeah. Um, so at that point, I already knew a lot of the basics, but it's always good to to cover more of the business stuff, especially the negotiation, that stuff that uh, um, Laz and, and Echo Chernik really know like very, very well. Um, so they were able to to give a lot more perspective on that. And that's, that's always good to like uh, know more 
or no more of the legalese that goes into contracts and why various phrasings can can really backfire on the artist or you know on the client and and try and avoid some of those pitfalls uh that was definitely like really really important stuff to cover yeah are you still in in uh in touch with any of your fellow winners oh absolutely yeah i think we've got we've got like a little discord that where we keep in touch um i'm probably going to see um some of the writers uh, coming up. I'm probably going to see Jeremy in Spokane in like uh, another couple months. Um, so yeah, I, I keep in touch with them. I, I'm actually probably going to see uh, Kina, who was the the grand prize winner for the illustrators prize from my year uh, in Phoenix uh, in like a month or so too. So yeah, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping in pretty good touch with them. Oh, that's great. Okay, so now um, when we talked three years ago, we were discussing art direction and the importance of setting your ego aside. So have you had any changes part of that, or do you have any more experience with that to be able to uh, assist the aspiring artist? Because I've talked to people before, and they've got, it's my create, it's, you know. Sure, that's that's a constant struggle for the artist, and I think my my advice kind of remains the same, like, Write the um, the angry or upset email and then delete that and write the professional one after uh, because ultimately you're helping the client realize their vision. Uh, there are some products where you're going to be able to put more of yourself into it and some where it's more of what they specifically want and there's it's a range. Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, hopefully you're going to get a sense of that as you go into the project um, so you're not blindsided by it like, Late later on, um, it's best when you have a, a general sense of like, you know, when I'm doing pieces for uh, Monty Cook Games for their Numenera setting, usually they're like, give me full freedom. They're like, just give us another Bruce Bernaysi landscape, you know, something weird, something cool, something you know that you feel like doing, and that works out great for them. Uh, but you know, doing some pieces for uh, D and D or, or Magic the Gathering, usually what they want is fairly specific, and I can get a sense from the brief like how much creative freedom there might be in there. Like, there's some things that they definitely need in there, and then I might be able to to get some some world building or some narrative that feels more more of my own uh, in there. And usually in the sketch process, we'll have a, a sense of whether they're down with that or not. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. So I'm just curious, because you've got, you know, following the, um, the art direction and setting your ego aside, but it seems like maybe you've got a balance because I see these, these landscapes that you create. How much of it is just your own thing or how many you're creating them because that's what they need for these various RPGs that you make them for? Uh, like I said, it really depends on the setting. Some clients are looking for new content that they haven't even dreamed of yet. And other ones are looking for fleshing out something that they already have uh, in mind. And then you've got like a, a behemoth like Wizards of the Coast, where they've got the whole apparatus and they've they've got like a very detailed world guide uh, for each setting. And it's had like a, a whole bunch of concept artists uh, working to, to fill it out. And so what's left to do, to be designed by the illustrator on the card uh, is relatively less freedom, I would say. So yeah, it really, really just depends by the project and the 
company, like, you know, what kind of process they, they intend to follow and what they think will get them the best result for their product. Okay. So now those things that I see, the, the mats, mm -hmm. they see hanging in your booth. So those were created for these games. This isn't just your, like, I'm pretty for, for the most part. I do have oh, okay, personal. Oh, that's my that was my confusion yeah. then. Yeah. So some of the so there are some pieces that are personal work. Mm -hmm. um, at this point in my booth, they're the minority, but like, <laughs> you know, because I've worked out, gotten to work on a lot of cool projects for a lot of uh, cool clients. And people are coming to you because they want the mat for that game that they're, they want to play. Yeah. Well, the mats generally are happening because these companies, as part of the overall negotiation, um, are licensing back to me the rights to be able to sell some prints or some uh, merch of that sort. Uh, when I do conventions. So that also varies by the clients because some, some clients aren't going to give you that, that right. Uh, some do. So yeah, it just, just kind of varies there, but I, I do have a mix of personal work and uh, client work in my, in my booth. I get it. So at the beginning I said, you, you know, you do a lot of conventions. So mm -hmm. how has that affected your career and how do you use it? To accomplish whatever it does that affects your career. Sure. I, the way I, I guess my philosophy of art business is um, I'm sitting on a stool and I want to have more than one leg on that stool because something like a pandemic, for example, can come <laughs> along and cut away one of those uh, uh, legs in a moment. You know, I went into 2020 with um, 14 conventions that I was planning to do, and I think I got one uh, that year. So you can't predict what's going to happen, but uh, certainly conventions uh, in non-pandemic years have been a very strong leg uh, for my art career. And one of the things that they allow is because I have that income uh, coming in from those, I can pick and choose my uh, projects that I work on more carefully. I don't have to take every little thing that comes along, you know, if it's, if it's not advantageous to me, if it doesn't really fit uh, the direction I want to take my art, um, I can just wait out for the projects that feel like they are really a great fit with what I want to do as an artist as well. So, you know, in, instead of, you know, talking about, I guess, setting aside the ego, it becomes a little easier uh, when you have the luxury of picking and choosing your projects so that they are a really good fit for what you want to do already. Right, right. So now that now is another good point, you know. So at the beginning, you didn't have that. Mm -hmm. So um, so for an aspiring artist, so now you've you've moved up many rungs in the ladder since I last spoke with you. Sure. So it makes sense no matter what to bite your tongue if somebody's being a jerk because people talk to each other. And if you're, if you're a jerk as an artist or as a writer, you know, that gets around. And if you don't have a problem with that being your reputation, then okay. But it right. seem that's not good. I, I would say that there's a, a limit to how far you bite your tongue because everyone's going to have their final boundaries, right? Um, don't become the jerk, but if you're dealing with a jerk, you know, that yeah. you might 
be like, okay, like this is the last project we'll work on, uh, or this project isn't working for both of you. So in some cases, illustrators will, you know, or the client will, uh, will institute a kill fee where we're like, okay, this, this project isn't working out and we're each going to go our separate ways very professionally. Um, and I'm getting some value for the work that I've already put in, but you know, we each, we each do our own thing. So there are some other tools that the illustrator has to deal with those in a way that is professional, you know, definitely don't want to be the jerk or the drama queen in this industry, because as you say, the word gets around, but there also will be some projects that you get into uh, for whatever reason, because you needed the money or whatever, and they just don't work out. And, you know, yeah. sometimes it's okay to, to you know, professionally um, communicate that with the client and, and go. So how would you do ways. that? Because that, that makes, totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you can't always sit there and just let somebody walk over you and just no. do that. So at what point, so let's just go through a couple scenarios how that might just, you know. Sure. It doesn't have to be a real thing. It can be just a, a, a mock-up of something type thing. Sure. So I do have a real situation, but I won't name any names or anything like that, um, where a client just was very indecisive at every stage of the the process. Um, I went above and beyond to give them, you know, more thumbnails and rough sketches than I normally would and more work in progress and uh, several uh, proposed finals like – you know, generally, I, w- I wouldn't recommend necessarily doing doing that. You'd want to establish in your contract that they have a certain number of revisions, and if they're doing any more than a certain number of revisions, uh, the price is going to be renegotiated. You know, it might be like a percentage of the total contract each time they need a revision after a certain number. Mm-hmm. That's generally how I, I handle that. But and how many revisions is is the norm? I, I believe a lot of contracts will, will put in like uh, three revisions or something like that. My approach is usually I'll, I'll submit a proposed final and I'll tell the client that, you know, if they have anything they need changed, give me the laundry list because the next one's the final. And after the final, you know, uh, then any additional ones will, will be charged extra. And they already know from the contract how much those will will cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I try to let them know ahead of time, and you know, keep it all like we we all know what our expectations are. Um, but you know, in this case, uh, he just couldn't make up his mind, and I couldn't wait around on him forever. I have other clients, other projects going on. Um, in that particular case, I, I even got uh, feedback from some of the best in the industry because I was attending. Uh, the um, illustration masterclass, and I had uh, Donato Giancola and um, Lauren Panapinto, one of the art directors at Orbit, and um, uh, Dan Dos Santos, and you know they were advising me on how to make this piece for this client the best that it could possibly be, and he was still couldn't make up his mind, even with like you know, the like best. They, and they were all assuring me that I was, I was doing my best. I was, you know, uh, going above and beyond, uh, but it just couldn't work out. So we had to institute the, the kill fee and, and go our, our separate directions in the end. So when you do that, what type of communication is it done by email or by you 
stay away from phone calls and this stuff when it gets because um this particular client uh we did uh video calls i think on skype or something he Mm -hmm. was he was in another country um so that's how we were communicating each client is a little different uh mostly i i use emails yeah i'm a very wordy kind of person so i i like to i like to write i like to communicate that way that's my preferred way but some some clients prefer a phone call or a video call or something of that nature. It just depends. Okay. So now on, is there any particular book or guide to know how to charge? When we when I talked a few years ago, you mm-hmm. you know you estimate how much time would go into it and work it out against I don't know hundred dollars an hour or whatever mm-hmm. it was you had back then. Is that still your rough? tool or now are you you up to like a thousand dollars in it yeah just kind of uh it depends it's such a moving target when yeah. it comes to pricing uh there is um something uh i forget what it's called it's the the uh, um the guild handbook uh that gives a lot of general rates i would say you know that whoever they're polling it it's people who are very established in the industry. So for people just starting out, they might look at those uh, rates and their jaw will just drop to the floor because they don't feel like they can ask for that. I was happy to get $25. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of folks and, and artists in general underprice themselves or have a tendency to, to lean into the um, imposter syndrome and not really want to charge their worth, uh, feel afraid to, to push it. Um, so I do encourage... I think my philosophy um, for encouraging people to price correctly is uh, try and and be at least a little uncomfortable with what you're charging because what you're comfortable with is probably too little. And so if you're at least a little bit more, a little bit uncomfortable with it, you're, you're not going overboard, but you are pushing it forward. And maybe the next time you push it a little forward and you can gauge you know, how many uh, clients you've got and what kind of demand there is for your work. And when you're in over demand, it's time to start raising your rates. And if it's just a total ghost town, then maybe you went a little too far. Uh Um, But it's also important to keep in mind that, especially with upper end clients, uh, price is not the main consideration for a lot of these people. They want quality and they've got money to spend. They've got you know, sometimes million dollar budgets to spend on all sorts of things, one of which might be the art. And so they're not sitting there balking because you're you're charging a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand even, depending on what you're doing for them. Um, but they want quality or they want speed or you know, some combination of those things, or they want a particular uh, style and point of view that only a certain artist uh, will give them. Um, and so those are also um, aspects or edges mm-hmm. that you can use to to realize that you can charge more. Yeah. I had a guest, Artem Marolovich. He was uh, one of our winners 15 and 20 years ago. He does a lot, he has a lot, does a lot of galleries in New York and in Florida. He went to UAE once, and he had his the agent there saying, "Okay, how much are you gonna charge?" And he says, oh, "Okay, a thousand. He says, "No, no, 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 no. You know, you have to 
$10,000 a piece. He said, what? He was like, he was very, he was out of his skin mm-hmm. at that point. Sure. He sold out. Yeah. But then he said, then the problem was when he came back to the United States, he did everything there in $10,000 a piece, and now he's coming back here, and that's not the same rate. So he had some problems there sure. of making it back here on how to charge himself, you know, because if you, if you're at a certain level and you, and you go down, then it misrepresents you as well because you're also represented as an artist based right. upon how much you're able to pull. Where that ends up being a problem is more with uh, gallery art. Yeah. Um, because uh, it's an investment item for a lot of people. Right. And so when they see that one of your pieces sells for a certain amount, they don't want to see that the next month it's selling for less. Exactly. Right? That represents a, a yeah. loss of yeah. value for them. Uh, so if you're in a situation like that where, you know, the prices are transparent, everyone can can see what they're selling for, then you don't want to, to be in a position where you have to back down from your price. Uh, you overprice yourself and then walking it back is not a good look for that kind of person. So it is, it is a factor uh, where there are some rare situations where um, you want to be careful about overpricing yourself and then having to walk it back. I think it kind of reminds me of like the logic between, uh, behind, um, how some, um, uh, startups in the tech scene, you know, when they're going for rounds of, uh, of venture capital money, and there are some situations where overpricing yourself can cause a problem down the, the road. So you have to think about it strategically, mm-hmm. you know, you're creating a long-term career for yourself. Um, so yes, it's nice when you can you can ask a lot more, but also keep in mind uh, what your other markets are and whether you're still going to be able to access um, those markets if you manage to overprice yourself. Right, which in the market that he sold at in UAE, he mm-hmm. wasn't overpriced. Yeah. That's what, I mean, those are people that like... Sure. And yeah. also there's cultural differences because I was just in the uh, UAE uh, a month or two ago and, you know, like haggling is still a big part of the culture there and it's expected in a lot of circumstances. Yeah. So in some circumstances there, you might price higher with the expectation that you're going to be haggling down, whereas, you know, you're selling selling things in the US that's like almost never going to be the case. Um, so yeah, keeping in mind the cultural differences there can, can be, can, can impact the prices as well. I got it. So then on, um, how an artist should price themselves, they're starting, they're getting going, they're good. Mm -hmm. You know, they're definitely a good artist. Um, so without committing yourself to something, well, he said, you know, we're not (laughs) not backing the corner like that, but what would be a way for an artist to start out so that he's he's only so he doesn't like you know you said so a little bit uncomfortable what's mm-hmm. sometimes talking to somebody they feel uncomfortable let alone asking for money period mm-hmm. so is there some type of um, thing that how you got started how you moved into it just say say okay I mean you're mm-hmm. extroverted so you're not an introvert by any by any. Hmm. At least from what I've, how I've known you, at least I'm, I'm able to present myself as okay, a, as fine, an extra. Fine, fine. <laughs> so, how did you get started? Um, well, 
I, I got started in a way I wouldn't recommend for anyone. <laughs> um, in 2015, when I left my last uh, more full-time kind of a teaching job that I was in, and I was just trying to get jobs from anyone and everyone I could. I was applying to everything that I could find online. Um, and I ended up with my first few clients off of Craigslist. And that was terrible. Uh, they were like really bad fit for for what I wanted to do as an artist. But you know, as starting out, I didn't really know that yet, and massively undercharging and and all the rest of it. So it was like really uh, dredging the bottom of the barrel uh, with that experience. Um, then after about a year. I realized that networking was going to be a, a major part of actually getting more professional types of gigs. And I started going to some indie game developer um, meetups and events in, in the Seattle area. And I, I think one of the first uh, professional gigs that I got was uh, just from talking to another artist there uh, who was like a, a guest speaker or something um, and we had a great conversation and then, uh, she said, Hey, I've got this, um, this commission, uh, for a, a game company card art that I, I don't have the time to do, but I'll, I'll pass them on to you. And like the next day uh, I got contacted by them and I think they had more like a set rate. So it's like, okay, $300 for the card art on this particular thing, uh, which I guess at the time, like I, I considered that like. Uh, pretty okay. Uh, tabletop is in general, the, the rates are pretty terrible across the board, to be honest. Like they're, they're, they're kind of like, I think they set their rates like in the nineties and, and just haven't like increased them with inflation a whole lot. Um, so, but that at the time that was, that was perfectly fine for where I was at. I was comfortable with that amount. Uh, and that was a good starting point. And then I was able to start uh, moving up from there. Uh, that kind of art that I was doing, I'd consider uh, what they'd call like a, a half page piece in terms of the level of detail. It has to look good enough for their publication if it were to be printed at the size of like half of a, a normal letter sized uh, right. uh, piece of paper. Okay. So then on um, the idea of selling your soul because you just I got to be an artist. I'm you mm -hmm. know the poor starving artist. I mean it's it's its own trope. Sure. <laughs> you know. A lot of people buy into that including a lot of artists unfortunately. Yeah, so I'm that's why I was hoping to be able to at least help dispel that mm -hmm. that um everybody knows. And I've experienced that over the years with this contest, you know, uh, when we opened up and enabled artists to be able to upload their their art into a portal instead of sending it by mail, mm -hmm. we got a lot more entries because some of them couldn't afford the postage and making sure. the copies and stuff like yeah. that and sending them around. Barrier. Yeah. So, what words of wisdom? What inspiration? What gems of <laughs> <laughs> can I offer to to those, exactly. those folks? Yes. <laughs> um, well, first of all. Uh, one that I always say is it's a marathon, not a sprint. 
you know, you're in this for the long haul if you're like really passionate about your art. So keep in mind that you don't want to go into situations where, uh, you know, like we were talking about uh, having the ego drama queen kind of stuff, like you're going to damage your long-term uh, reputation. Um, you don't want to uh, get into situations where you will burn out because you're asking for too little money uh, for a large amount of, of ill-paid work. Uh, maybe work that doesn't really fit what you actually do as an artist, like that kind of stuff will burn you out pretty quickly, I feel like. You, you kind of have to to analyze your situation and, and understand when it's really uh, bad for you and bad for your mental health and so on, because mm -hmm. you won't be able to go the distance right. uh, if you continue down that path. Um, another thing that I like to tell people is uh, focus on the art that you like to make, like what you create, rather than what you consume. Because it's very easy to mistake the two. We all have a lot of games and movies and, and uh, TV shows and books and all sorts of things that we like to consume as consumers. And we're big fans of this thing and that thing. But the overlap between your fandoms... And what you actually create as an artist, the style and the subject matter and all of that is not necessarily like a full, it's not a circle. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes they can even be very different things. Like I could be a big fan of anime art, but the actual art that I personally like to make might be completely different from that. And so I have to recognize and know that about myself and honor it and pursue the kind of art that I actually like to make. And then I can go home and I can enjoy consuming the other types, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean I have to make them. Right. Okay, so on, I touched upon a, a few minutes ago, you told me, actually maybe it was at the panel that was done at, at um, DragonCon uh, a few years ago, you said you had, you kind of roughly worked out like $100 an hour, you know, um, something like that. And then, because mm -hmm. I said, was it like $25 an hour? He said, no, it's like 100 you know, on... Uh, it, it depends. I think a lot of, um, like, just as a, here's a concrete example. I think a lot of entry to mid-level concept artwork tends to be charged at like uh, 75 to 100 an hour. Uh, these days is like a pretty pretty normal benchmark. Mm -hmm. People always also use like day rates of like 500 to 600 uh, per day if they're just like doing concept after concept for like you know a full a full eight hours or so. Um, some people use week rates, um, and it depends on the type of project. There are types of project like concept art where you're expected to do a lot of inter iterations, where a flat fee doesn't really capture what you're going to be doing because you may have to iterate and iterate and iterate mm -hmm. again. Um, and you'll be stuck with that flat fee, no matter how much more you need to iterate on it. Yeah. Uh, whereas most illustrative work tends to be a flat fee. And uh, those rates depend on how quickly you can do the work and what industry you're in. And it varies quite a lot between uh, companies and uh, between industries like tabletop versus publishing um, so deciding what you can actually afford as a starting point and then finding like some multipliers, 
Like, I guess I, I think about it as like, okay, here's the base rate of what I can accept. Um, but what kinds of rights are they buying? Uh, is this a tiny indie uh, studio or is this a big behemoth of a company? Um, that's going to apply some multiplier multipliers in, in mm -hmm. various directions. Or like, is this even a charity or something? that can increase or, or decrease the, the price. Right. Because I think what it actually comes down to is you're trying to capture a portion of the brand value that you are creating for your customer. If you're working on commercial art, right, you're doing something like a cover for D&D, &D, that has a lot of brand value. A lot of people are going to be seeing that art all over the world. They're going to be using it um, for all sorts of marketing purposes on their website and, and so on. So the value should be much higher right. for that versus like doing a cover for a little indie game studio that's never had a, a hit before. Um, you know, like they probably don't have the budget and you're not really creating the same amount of brand value for them probably because their return on investment is nowhere near the same as a giant company. I get it. So then I'm an aspiring artist and I'm going to be, I'm going to do my illustration. Is that a good thing to do or should an artist be able to diversify so that if, if somebody comes and says, okay, I like your stuff, but I need you to be able to give me acrylics, or I need you to be able to do, do does it ever come in like that where people ask for a certain type that I want? Like types of mediums? Yeah, I want, I want to be able to hang something up on my wall. I love, like what you do, but I don't want it to be a Photoshop. I want something that's painted. Do you ever get that type of request? Um, not a whole lot. Um, okay. I would say that there used to be more companies that might have distinguished, I think in the old, in well, old, the old days, days. <laughs> but, you know, like at some point Echo was telling me that, uh, Wizards of the Coast used to, before I ever, um, was even a gleam in their eye as, as someone to work with, uh, they used to have like, um, they, they used to not hire digital art. Um, now they do hire digital art, quite a lot of it, um, but they do still have some strictures because they're they're wanting to align themselves with more of a painterly look. So as long as your digital art can kind of fit within the the look that they're going for, and you know a, a lot of artists are capable of of making a digital piece look like it was painted uh, in oil or acrylic or so on, then then they're fine. Uh, that's just, yeah, that's part of the conversation with the client about what they want the look of their piece to be, mm -hmm. not necessarily what it's actually made out of. Uh, there might be like some collectors, if you're kind of uh, edging more into the uh, fine art side of things, then they will probably want a traditional piece that they can collect uh, rather than just something that they're uh, using as a, a cover that they're going to, to print and print a million of, right? Um, right. On all these books. So um, you earlier mentioned about, you know, multiple legs on your chair. Mm -hmm. So what are, like, what are examples of all the legs on your chair? And it's okay if it's more than four, because you had the convention. Sure, yeah. And when that was knocked out, then yeah. you... Conventions, 
Uh, I've got a Patreon, so I've got a way for people to personally support me and, and support specifically my personal work that is not for a client. Um, freelance. Um, I also I have a web shop, so if the conventions shut down, I can still sell to people uh, via that. Um, uh, these days, because of some of the clients that I've worked for, uh, there are also like specialty markets for collectors of of D and D and and magic uh, stuff. So mm-hmm. you know, if I'm incorporating a sketch stage, like I might do a layout sketch early in the process. I haven't gotten to the point where I'm comfortable doing a final painted piece uh, for my work for those clients. I have the freedom to if I want, but I don't think my skills with like acrylic or oil are up to where my skills are with digital yet. But I'll do like a, a layout sketch mm-hmm. earlier in, early in the process. And there are collectors for those things. And there's collectors for uh, what are known as artist proofs, mm-hmm. uh, which are basically contributor copy of the cards that we're doing art for. And there's people who collect those and people who collect signatures from all the artists on the game and, and stuff like that. So those all kind of constitute little additional niches that have developed uh, over time. So yeah, you kind of you look around based on the type of art that you do. Uh, you might find there are more venues for it than you thought. Yeah. Now, I haven't touched upon this yet, but we got ourselves about seven minutes left. It's, got, it's getting so much attention right now. Hmm. Chat GPT, AI art. Sure. Okay. A- AI is the, the tsunami that's bearing down on us all. So, I mean, we've put in rules, we've updated rules in, in this mm-hmm. volume of Writers and Illustrators of the Future that it's not accepted. Mm-hmm. And um, I know one of the ways that we worked out, at least we, we hope we've worked out to be able to detect is, okay, so send us your layered files if, if mm-hmm. there's a question on it, because yeah. if it's final art, if it's AI art, you're not going to have that. Yeah. What's your take on AI art? Have you used it yourself for anything that you've created? Uh, so I've, I've tried it out uh, early on. I, I did try Midjourney to see what all the hoopla was about, to see what the capabilities of the technology were. Um, I tried it out like kind of as like, okay, well, this is a way that I could uh, generate the equivalent of like um, a photo reference uh, that you can bash into a digital piece as a texture or something like that. Uh, I tried it out as a way to generate some um, some rough, like uh, some some reference or like kind of thumbnails for pieces. Uh, I personally didn't find it that useful for the way that I work. Uh, it generated some like semi-useful things, I would say. And I, I recognize that the technology is like, you know, constantly improving um, and and getting better all the time. So like my judgment, you know, like last summer is, is probably not very accurate to what it's capable of now. But in terms of like setting it up with, okay, like a, a brief for an illustration that I'm trying to solve, I didn't find that it was very useful or it didn't spit out options that were very pertinent to the way that I would want uh, a piece to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my, my impression was mixed. Um, and I think that for some types of, 
of commercial art that's like uh, it, it definitely produces a good enough result for a I mean, lot of people. It seems like it's music versus music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's like it's very ren- like it'll give you something very rendered. Uh, it can uh, simulate a whole bunch of different styles uh, depending on what you feed it. And for a lot of the clients at the bottom rungs, rungs of the ladder in particular, all those clients that like the beginning artist is sort of depending on, even though they, they may not pay that well and they, they may be um, not really a professional that you're working with, but more of a, a personal commission kind of a, a feel. A lot of those uh, clients are, are definitely disappearing because they can just, you know, um, pop some prompt in and, and get a result that's good enough to their taste. Uh, for working with a lot of high-end IPs. There's uh, legal considerations that that make it less useful. Uh, there are uh, considerations that, like, on a high-end thing like uh, Magic or or a, a book cover, um, they often want a lot more ability to ask for changes. And if all you know is prompting, you're not going to be able to give them what they want. Like, oh, let's turn this things slightly well if you have a 3d model you can do that uh or uh you can repaint it if you're working 2d so like a lot of the um the back and forth Mm -hmm. that you need in a lot of high-end uh professional uh commercial art just isn't there uh with ai as it is now at least i mean at some point they might be able to institute more sliders and things that would allow you to to accomplish some of those things um, i think it's also you can't get copyright isn't isn't yeah, allowed like, right now. like i said the legal issues are one of the the things that are saving us <laughs> um and it is very scary i think we're headed in in what seems to be a very dystopic uh future as far as a lot of creatives being able to support themselves and do the kind of art that they want. It's not that AI will replace human art completely, but if we only have uh, fine art as mm-hmm. the the sole remainder at the end of the day, and maybe like some craft art that that people have, uh, that's a a sad remnant of a much richer tradition of art in our civilization that. Would most of it's wiped away. I like to uh, compare it to like if you had uh, a diverse rainforest and uh, you don't burn down the whole thing, but you burn down like, you know, 70% of it, what's left is also going to be degraded, right? Like all the animals and, and things that used to live in the greater rainforest are all crowding into the last little uh, copses of, of forests that are left mm-hmm. and um, the the weather patterns are changed and, and uh, you know, all sorts of things um, just means that the overall environment uh, is much worse off than before as a result of, of this flood. And, you know, even for artists like myself, I think uh, in terms of the clients that I work with and the work that I do, like I don't feel too personally threatened yet. I can keep going for quite a while uh, as things stand. Um, but it's scary to think about where it's it's going. And I do care a lot about other artists, artists who are starting out and what their experience is going to be. Because I know that it was already difficult, mm-hmm. you know, when I was coming up in the field five years ago 
and I can only imagine how much more difficult it is now than it was then. And I don't think they deserved that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, a, a worrying thing for sure. Yeah. Well, I definitely like to think that you're always going to have the lower level, you know, aficionados, mm -hmm. you know, in the lower, in the lower level, um, people that just want something that's going to hang in their $15 a night motel, mm -hmm. you know, but you're always going to have for the higher end stuff, you know, like when TV came out, that's the end of theater, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. Then movies, no, rather when movies came out, that was the end of theater, but it wasn't. Then when TV came at the end of movies, it wasn't. Theater is still going strong. I was just in New York recently. It's just like the Times Square that hold the, uh, right. that the district there is just totally jam-packed with, there's so much more, you know, the off-Broadway as well as Broadway, there's just shows all over the place. So it doesn't, you know, even though you've got the, the lower budget with hundreds of TV stations now, right. it hasn't seemed to have adversely sure. affected that. So hope well, is going to be the same thing then with, with art. I, I certainly hope so. And I, I think that anyone arguing that like art is dead because of this is, is incorrect. Like it yeah. will continue. It's just a matter of like, how healthy will it be? And will it be restricted to people who uh, can afford to go without a livable wage for 10 years before they actually get a sustainable career going, which means a less diverse right. uh, field of art, right? Yeah. So there's other considerations there about like, you know, how it will affect all the artists who are involved. Like, you know, I definitely think there will be some, but how many? Yeah. Right. And I, okay. I want I want more voices. I want more niches for artists that are mm -hmm. viable. Well, that's that was the intention by Mr. Hubbard on creating these contests. And yeah. so, um, with that, um, long may illustrators the future live. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much, Bruce. My pleasure. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged, it is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Bruce. My pleasure. <laughs>